Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. And all God's people say, amen. Isn't it good just to be together? Turn with me, if you will, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, <clears throat> verses 7 through 12 tonight. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We've been talking about the danger of deception. This really is part two. This is the next message. We had two weeks on one message. We didn't quite finish it. But tonight we're going to talk about the humility of a true teacher. We've talked about the heart of a true teacher. Tonight we're going to talk about the humility of a true teacher. In times of deception, when deception is on every corner, what does a true teacher look like? How does he live? What does he think? We're going to see this in the Apostle Paul tonight. And to get us into this, sheep are, are fragile Animals. I don't know if you know or not, but they're totally defenseless. Uh, they're easily led astray. They have absolutely no sense of direction. And if something comes on them, they're as slow as Christmas trying to get out of the way. They don't hear very well, and they don't see very well. They're easily disturbed. They're the most nervous of all creatures. And they're simple prey for wolves and other predators. Without man to protect them, they're dead. There's not a thing in the world they have to, 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 to offer as far as being uh, wary of, of, of wild animals, etc., and being able to escape. There's nothing there. But shepherds are also awesome to observe. If you've ever watched one, when they watch over these fragile sheep. In 1984, I went to Israel for the first time. And by the way, we're leaving this Tuesday, 70 of us, and I want you to be praying for us as we go over. be back the 31st. But my first time was in 1984. My father-in-law was able to go with us. Diana said she wanted him to go. Precious man, he's with the Lord today because of this trip, I really believe. The hotel we stayed in, in one of the different particular cities, I don't remember which one, was backed up to a shepherd's field. And one afternoon, we had a whole afternoon free. And so he and I sat and watched for a whole afternoon shepherds watching over their flock. Funniest thing, I mean, one would just stray over here and then have to go get him. I mean, I could just see it. Being a pastor all these years, it's, uh, it just made a lot of sense. I mean, uh, here's this one. It's supposed to be right here grazing, but they get over here. It, it's incredible. Well, in biblical times, the shepherd so loved his sheep and was so willing to protect them and understood their defenseless nature in that sense of the word that he would put them in a pen uh, with a fence around it, and he would lay at the door of the gate. Jesus even used that picture in the Gospels. And he would lay there to protect those sheep. Well, we could go on and on about sheep. I looked it up, and there's just tons of stuff I came up with. But 
in the church of Jesus Christ. This is the heart of what a true spiritual shepherd is all about. Now, whether that's a teacher in a connections class, whether that's a father or a mother in a home with children, whether that be a pastor in the pulpit, they have this desire within their heart to protect the flock, to protect them from the deception that's all around them. God's Word is what protects the sheep from the wolves that teach error and that leads to destruction. For this reason, we learned last week that God's spiritual shepherds care about what and who the flock listens to. Paul was deeply concerned about the believers in Corinth because they were listening to the false apostles, or they called themselves apostles, false teachers that were there in, in, in Corinth. He says in verse 4, For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. These false apostles or teachers were preaching and teaching another way of salvation and in doing so had to discredit the Lord Jesus in their message. Because of this false message, there was a false spirit that was received by the people who listened to all of this. Instead of the spirit of life and love that the one and only Holy Spirit brings when we receive the Lord Jesus Christ, they had a spirit of bondage and of fear, a critical spirit. You know, you can tell by the countenance of an individual who or what he's listening to because it produces a different spirit. If you're listening to God through his word, it produces a different spirit within your life. And the, the judgmental, critical people that these false apostles were began to gain an audience there, and others joined in with them because it was a different spirit. They preached a false Jesus, which metaphorically means another way of salvation, and it produced a false spirit. Summed up, it was a false message that they were preaching. But that really wasn't what was troubling Paul that the Corinthians had these false teachers amongst them, they're going to have them till Jesus comes back. What was bothering him was they were paying to listen to them. Now, you'll see that later on. You see, they actually wanted to hear what they had to say. Paul says, you bear this beautifully. You listen well to these false teachers, just like Eve listened to the serpent in the garden of, the, of Eden. He says in verse 3, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. I've said this over and over again. The best way to stop false doctrine is just to quit listening to it. Stop paying for it. Shut it off and come to God and to his word. Unlike the smooth-talking, deceptive false teacher the true spiritual shepherd who wants to protect his sheep is very plain spoken. It means he gets right to the point. He's no messing around. Verse 5 and 6 of chapter 11, For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles, but even if I am unskilled in speech. Now Paul had no respect for these false apostles, and the word unskilled there can be translated plain spoken. What he had to say was not comfortable to the ears of people who wanted to feel better about themselves. The false teachers had accused him of contemptible speech in verse 10 of chapter 10. And now we're beginning to understand why. Paul wasn't a politician. 
He wasn't trying to get the people to like him like the false teachers were, were doing in their polished rhetoric. But not only was Paul's plain spoken, he had, a, he had the upper hand on these false teachers. He knew not only what he was talking about, he knew who he was talking about. He had an intimate knowledge of Christ personally in his life. In verse 6 it says, but even if I am unskilled in speech, if I'm plain spoken, yet I'm not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way, we have made this evident to you in all things. The word knowledge there is the word gnosis comes from the word gnosko, which means to be experiential knowledge. I know him. Oh, I love that. I love that. There's even another word he uses in some of the other epistles, epignosis, which means a fuller, deeper experiential knowledge, a clear knowledge of him. Not something you have in your head. This is heart knowledge. This is experiential knowledge. He knew Christ, and he walked with Christ day by day. And the believers in Corinth, they knew this. They knew it. As the verse says, he said, I've made this evident in all things. Everything that he did, he reflected the fact that he knew who he was talking about by the Christ that lived within him. Well, that's his heart. Well, today we take another step, and we're going to look at one of the evident ways in which he knew Christ that he wasn't in any way slack in the knowledge of who he was talking about. We're going to see it lived out in his life. We're going to see the humility of a true teacher. Humility is not something that you come up with yourself. Like the guy says, have you read my book, Humility, and how I achieved it? <laughs> no, that's not it. Humility is something that God produces in a person's life. Matter of fact, there's a word, tapiofrosini. It's a, it's a humble mind. It means it's what happens when a person... I don't know how to say this, gets into the presence of God. And in the presence of God, he sees who God is, and he gets as flat down as he possibly can. That's humility. And a person cannot teach on it or speak on it if he hadn't been there. And Paul said, hey, I want you to see something else as a contrast. We're going to see this today. Paul humbled himself so that the people of Corinth might be exalted. We're going to look at this humility today, the humility of a true teacher. Now, you see it in contrast to the deceptive teachers that are around. As a matter of fact, next message, when we get back from Israel, we'll be talking about the characteristics of these false teachers. We've been looking at a true teacher, his heart and his humility. But when we get back, we're going to see the other side to that, and you're going to see the contrast. It's like black and white. Well, first of all, the first thing I want you to see is his humility was illustrated in unselfishness. Unselfishness. Verse 7. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached the gospel to you without charge? Did I commit a sin? Before you get into this context, you've got to understand a few things. Remember, if you haven't been with us, we've been studying this now for over a year. In 2 Corinthians 2.17, he made a statement that if you caught it, He's referring to now. He says, for we're not like many, speaking of those false teachers in Corinth, peddling the word of God, using the word of God for selfish gain, but as from sincerity, but as from God. We speak in Christ in the sight of God. You see, because of the mercenary heart of the false teachers, Paul has made a decision. He has chosen not to take any money at all, ever, for preaching the gospel to the Corinthians. Now, this choice would disarm the false teachers and their unjust criticism of him. Back in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 18, Paul said, What then is my reward? He said, That when I preach the gospel, 
I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. In other words, Paul had every right to ask them to support him, but he had chosen not to so that they might hear the gospel freely, that there'd be nothing marring the message he wanted them to hear. His willingness to humble himself and not charge for the gospel was just another evidence that he knew Christ. This was Christ working in his life. Don't deify Paul. Understand who lived in him. But in doing so, in making this choice, there's something else that he unselfishly understood was going to take place. By making the choice not to charge, he beca that became more ammunition for the false teachers to criticize him. He said, now what do you mean, Wayne? You see, Paul knew the culture of his day very well because he lived during that day. A speaker was evaluated by the amount that they charged you to come and hear them. Remember, Corinth is in Greece. I hope you understand the, the geography of this. And, and those of oratory skills were looked up to, and people paid a great price to come and hear them. An accomplished speaker would charge a large sum for people to come and hear him, while a fair, mediocre speaker would, would charge a lesser price. And then a poor, amateur speaker would not charge at all, and people would laugh and look down on him. He understood his culture. Paul, by refusing to charge, by default, had given more ammunition to the false teachers to criticize his speaking. Did I commit a sin by humbling myself so that you might be exalted, he says? The word for sin is the word hamartia. Hamartia is that which misses the mark, like I didn't do from across the road with the oryx. But it's a, if, you pull the, <laughs> if you pull the bow back and release it and miss the target, that's the word hamartia. But in this context, it means, have I offended you? Have I done something to miss the mark of what you expected in my life? Have I offended you in some way by humbling myself? The word humbling is the word tapinos that we talked about a moment ago, which means to stoop low or to lie down flat. Did I offend you by stooping so low so that you might be exalted? Did, did I do that? Did I miss the mark of what you expected in me? In verse, uh, the word exalted there is the word ipso. And it's the word that means to be raised to a higher position. And in this particular context would be the position of salvation. And he they were brought out because they heard the message and received it. Did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel to, of God to you without charge? Paul said, did I stoop that low to get, I mean, it means to lie down flat. Did I get that low in your eyes? because I didn't charge you like the false teachers are charging you to come and hear them in order that you might be saved? Is that, is that what you're saying to me? Paul wanted nothing to stand in the way of their salvation. You see, because of his humility, they who received Christ were exalted, like I said, into a different position, to a higher level in that sense of the word, meaning they're now sons of God. What Paul did he did not do for his own sake. By making this choice, it wasn't for his benefit. It, as a matter of fact, it fell in on him. Or for the sake of the false teachers, but he did it for the sake of those people that needed to purely hear the gospel of Christ. He, knowing the criticism that would come, humbled himself for their sake. That's that selflessness. That's that unselfish attitude that you find with a person who's been in the presence of God, who loves God and people more than he loves himself. 
He literally invited the verbal abuse in order that the Corinthians might be saved. That sort of sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11, you know, it says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who thought it not robbery to be equal with God? But he humbled himself. He stooped down. Why? Because he saw the need in somebody's life. He thought more about us than he did even of himself so that we might be saved. That's Jesus being Jesus in Paul. The, the humility of Paul is just simple evidence of the unselfish Christ that lived in him, causing Paul not to think of himself, but only of those who could purely hear the gospel message preached. The humility of a true teacher is illustrated in unselfishness. Loves others more than he loves his reputation. He's willing to stoop down, make himself of no reputation in the eyes of the false apostles who were criticizing him daily in order that the message might be clear to the people that were hearing. He chose to humble himself. Well, the second thing we see here, I don't know what, what you get into when I'm speaking on these things, but I have to study this. And God is consistently ministers to my heart. I hope it's saying something to you. This is what humility does. Secondly, Paul's humility was expressed in spiritual discernment. God gives the grace to the humble, the grace of wisdom, the grace of discernment. He doesn't give it to the proud. He gives it to the humble. And, and he, in each and every situation, he says, if you lack this, you can run to God and he'll give it to you freely and abundantly. Paul demonstrates this, this, this grace of discernment and wisdom many times throughout the New Testament. This isn't the only time. For instance, if you've ever studied the life of Paul in Acts 16.3, when he picked up Timothy and he was going to move into a different area, in order to disarm the Jewish community that he knew was in that area and what they might say about Timothy, he circumcised Timothy. He knew that they knew that Timothy's daddy was a, a Gentile, but his mother was a Jew. And so to disarm what may come up, God gave him the wisdom to circumcise Timothy. However, you turn right around. He in no way was going to circumcise Titus, a Gentile, when he took him before the, the, the apostles there in Jerusalem to check out whether or not they, they were preaching grace the right way. He wouldn't do it, and they didn't tell him to do it. So in one situation, he circumcised Timothy, but in another situation, he didn't circumcise Titus. God, because of the humility of Paul in seeking him, God gave him wisdom and discernment that's unprecedented. You can't find it anywhere else. And here in our text, he won't take any money at all from the church of Corinth, particularly for church. He'd never charged for the gospel no matter where he was. But did he take support from anybody else? Oh, yeah. not for He didn't charge them for it. But the people from Macedonia, he did take the monies that they sent to him. But he would take nothing from the church of Corinth. God gave him the discernment to realize that's going to be a huge problem if you do that in that area. Verse 8 through 12. I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. But for when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. That's 8 and 9. The discernment that God had given Paul to not charge was because of the apparent assault that the false teachers were already making on him that he was aware of there in Corinth. And it was all concerning money. It was all concerning money. It appears that the offering that Paul was taking up in the churches, including Corinth, was a huge problem. 
And this is, this is sort of reading between the lines, but yet he says enough things in defense of that offering to let you know that there was a problem there. Because, because this was a problem, instead of going himself to Corinth to take it up, he sent Titus and, and a group to, to make sure the offering was ready. He didn't go himself. And he defended, if you remember when we studied through, he defended the integrity of that offering for the poor saints in Jerusalem who were struggling. And he was taking it in many churches, but also Corinth. In chapter 8, 16 through 21, he defended the integrity of that offering. Listen to what he's going to say. We haven't got there yet, but in chapter 12, 16 through 18. Be, but be that as it may, and a lot of things he says is tongue-in-cheek. I did not burden you myself. Nevertheless, watch this crafty fellow that I am. He said, that's what he was called. I took you in by deceit. In other words, that's all tongue-in-cheek. Certainly I've not taken advantage of you through any of those whom I have sent to you, have I? I urged Titus to go and I sent the brother with him. Titus did not take any advantage of you, did he? Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? You see, you can see that this offering's a problem. And it's a problem because of those mercenary false teachers using it against Paul. They were using the offering to lie about Paul's intentions. He, uh, he's fleecing the flock financially. That's what he's doing. And isn't it ironic? The very ones who criticized him for not taking any money for the gospel turned right around and blamed him for being mercenary by taking this offering for the poor in Jerusalem. So Paul counters. You see, when you're in difficult situations like this, God has to give wisdom. Paul counters by saying in 2 Corinthians 11.8, I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. Now, some people was asking me this past week, surely the word rob doesn't mean rob. Is that what he's saying? You have to understand. Get into the feel of this. The term robbed is the word suleo, and it does mean to spoil, to plunder, to rob. Wait a minute. Wait, you mean Paul robbed? No, hang on. It's pretty evident. If you just get into the text, you can understand it. It's pretty evident that this word rob that's the word the false teachers were using. He does that all the time. He jumps back to what they're saying, and then he jumps to what he's actually doing. I can hear him say it now. They're just out to, he's just out to rob you. That's what this offering's all about. So Paul countered by saying, if I robbed any church, if I robbed any church, it was others. It wasn't you. I didn't take anything from you. Yes, he accepted money. And I remember that. He's the one who championed that cause all the way through Scripture, that a, a minister ought to be taken care of financially. He, he's the one who championed it. But he chose not to do it himself because of this kind of situation. He accepted it from the churches of Macedonia. And why wouldn't he accept it from Macedonia? Remember, they're the ones who said, please. It's kind of like, you ever been around a puppy? Y'all like puppies. I love puppies. Now, cats, mm, but I love puppies. And our little granddaughter stayed with us last night. Oh, that was so sweet. And she has this little dog, and you push its nose, and it goes, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I had the biggest kick out of that. <laughs> you know, the puppies are like that. The Macedonians, to me, were like puppies. And they, when it came to giving, they're going, <laughs> we, let's give, let's give, let's give, let's give, let's give. They even gave beyond what they had. No wonder he took it from them. I'd take it from them too. He didn't want to take it from the, the Corinthians, the stingy Corinthians, got all they could, canned all they got, sat on the can, poured the rest. Look at verse 8 and 9 again. I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. Yeah, I took money from people that supported me. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need and in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you. 
and I will continue to do so. Again, the, the Macedonians were faithful, as he says, came to his rescue, took care of him. Church of Philippi, Church of Thessalonica, these, these churches in Macedonia took care of him. Remember, that's why he wrote the letter of the Philippians, because the gift that they had sent to him, the stingy Corinthians had, had not even begun to take up an offering. Now listen to this. A year before, they promised to give this offering, and they were the ones who ignited the Achaeans at all of, of Macedonia. And they hadn't even begun to, take, to do a thing about taking up that offering. And here's the Macedonian churches just couldn't wait to take care of the apostle Paul. Stingy, greedy. Paul had the discernment to know. In the midst of a tough situation, knowing what was going on there, knowing how it involved money, to not, not to be a financial burden to the Corinthians in any way because they really had a problem with, with money. Verse 9 again, And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. Isn't it awesome, the humble teacher that comes before God and says, Oh, God, I don't know what to do. I love that. I, I just think... So many people have to come across as always having the answers. No, man, this is the freedom of grace. Yeah. Rarely do we have an answer. We come before God and we lack the wisdom, we lack the discernment. Oh, God, here's the Macedonians wanting, me to, wanting to take care of me. Here's the Corinthians over here, and they got a problem with money, and God gave him the beautiful discernment. That's what you'll have. That's what I'll have when we come seeking him. And it won't be the same in every situation because God's the one who knows really what's going on. He gives us the, the discernment. The, it, 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 it's like a, a river that flows out of that humility. If that humility is there, it's a characteristic of it. There's going to be discernment. And that sort of discernment is going to be unprecedented in difficult and hard-to-handle situations. God will give you that discernment. I remember when I was pastoring over in Mississippi and uh, we were going to think about hiring, bringing on another man on staff and there was quite a little bit of a rift, not a little bit, <laughs> it was quite a rift. <laughs> I got out of town, I was, you can't hit a moving target. So I was speaking over in Oklahoma and I remember w when I got over there, they said, uh, they, somebody called me and said they had this meeting and I'm thinking, oh man. And I remember I was in a bachelor friend of mine's apartment over there, and I started throwing things, and he started catching them because it was his apartment. And I, and I didn't know what to do. There was going to be a big business meeting when I got back, and we were going to decide on it. And what I heard was all the, the, the strife and conflict that was being stirred up in the body. People had gotten on the phone and called, and we didn't have elders, which thank God we have here today. But, man, they were all stirring everybody up, and this, this, this lie and this lie, and Oh, it just infuriated me. But after I got through that stage of it, it scared me half to death. I didn't know what to do. And I remember coming back home, going out and getting on my face before the Lord. And God said, shut the meeting down, Wayne. Don't have it. it don't throw the baby away with the bathwater. And I won't tell you the whole story. It's a long story. But that was the best thing I could have ever done. But God had to tell me what to do. That's what he'll do. When you come before him and you're humble, I mean, you're, you're, you're bankrupt. You have not the wisdom. God will give that to you. It's something that flows out of a humble character that you and I can have if we're walking with him. 
So a teacher's humility is illustrated in unselfishness, but not only that, it's expressed in spiritual discernment. But the third and last thing is Paul's humility was anchored in God's love. Anchored in God's love. Love for God and love for those people. Love is the fruit of God's Spirit. I had a man tell me who preaches once. He said, I struggle with unconditional love, and it's, and it's bothering me to this day because that's the fruit of the Spirit. That's not what a man can come up with. That's what Jesus produces in us as we allow him through the humble walk that we have of saying, God, I can't. You never said I could. You can. You always said you would. The fruit of his Spirit is the very love that we're talking about here. It's like an anchor that holds a ship in a determined position. Verse 10 through 12, as the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. But what I'm doing, I will continue to do so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. And he speaks of those false teachers there. The words, as the truth of Christ is in me, ought to get your attention. That's Paul's way, and it was a way in their day, of actually getting people's attention. He said, what I'm about to say, you need to pay attention to. It's very, very important. As the truth of Christ is in me, he said, this boasting of mine. In other words, he's talking about here, he's referring to his determination not to charge for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's really not going to be just in Corinth. It's going to be anywhere he goes. Yes, he'll take support from churches, but he's not going to charge for the gospel. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine, this determination I have not to charge for the gospel will not be stopped. And the word stopped there is the word spragizo, which means to fence something off or to shut it in or to keep it from happening. Paul says that won't be the case. Nothing's going to stop me. No matter how much criticism I get from the false teachers, whatever, I'm not going to stop the determination of not charging for the gospel. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped. And then he broadens it here, not just in Corinth, in the regions of Achaia. Now, the regions of Achaia, hopefully you've been with us long enough in Corinthians to know what that's talking about. That's the whole area that Paul wrote to. Yes, he wrote to the church of Corinth, but to all the churches in Achaia. Now, where's Achaia? Back in chapter 1, in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, then he says, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. Achaia was the southern half of Greece. It was the lower peninsula of Greece. And Paul next adds a rhetoric question. You want a rhetoric question? He gives the answer to it. Uh, he, he says, they already know the answer to it. In my decision to not charge for the gospel, is it because I don't love you? Look at verse 11. Why am I doing this? Why am I so determined? Because I do not love you. God knows I do. You see, this is that love. Paul knows that the Corinthians know that his love is unquestionable. They know he loves him. The reason he's willing to take the abuse, the reason he's willing to do what he does is, is out of that love. That love is spurning him on. Because of God's love working in him, he would never charge for preaching the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 12, but what I am doing I will continue to do so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. In other words, churches would continue out of love for Paul to, to support him financially, but he would never charge for the gospel. 
And by refusing to do this, he was cutting off any opportunity that the false teachers might have of bringing down the message that he was preaching to them in such a pure way. So the humility of Paul is, is just a reflection of the character of Christ in him. It's illustrated by unselfishness. And it's evidenced by spiritual discernment because a humble man has the wisdom and spiritual discernment of God. And it's anchored in God's love for the gospel and for the people that he teaches. You know, it's amazing to me. I was in a conference and somebody said, Wayne, you can be teaching out of Genesis and still get the Christ life out of it. <laughs> I guess that's right. Uh, I'm, I'm driving a Ford F-150 truck. It's just a 2004, but that's okay. It's brand new to me. It is, I'm red and redneck heaven. And you know, I never saw a Ford 150s before. I've never owned one. I had mostly GMC. And I got this Ford 150 truck. I see them everywhere now. It's amazing. It's everywhere. Once I've experienced one, I see them everywhere. Once you've tasted of Christ living his life in you, you see it everywhere. You see the desperation God has to bring you to to understand this truth. And I tell you, it's such a freeing truth. I've got to tell you this illustration, and I'm, I've done it before, but I'll pull it back out again. Act like you hadn't heard it, okay? I love to do outdoor things. I just love to do outdoor things. My problem is I like to do them all, and I just don't have time. I do a lot more talking about doing what I like to do than actually doing it as many of you know. Years ago, I was going down to Kosciuszko, Mississippi to be with a friend of mine, George Hester. And George was an elder in a church there and I'd do a meeting for him. And usually I'd go during deer season. It was a wonderful combination. You, you hunt during the daytime, shoot anything that moves, then you preach at night. And I was just a good therapeutic week. But this particular time I went down, it was in February. The deer season ended in January the bass sea, he had a lake. Oh, it was full of largemouth bass. But at this time of the year, it was frozen over. About that thick of ice, you couldn't fish it. And I said, George, what are we going to do? He said, we're going to blow up beaver dams. My first question was, why? <laughs> and he said, man, we've got, we've got trees, 2,500 acres of trees, and we've got creeks running through these trees, and when the beavers dam up the stream, the water backs up on the trees, and, it, and, and after a while, you can't sell them. So every week, we've got to trap the beavers, blow up the beaver dams. You get to go with me. And I said, yes. We're going to ride on a four-wheeler, but the one I tried to start wouldn't work, so we both had to get on the same four-wheeler. That was very crowded. It's crowded with me being on a four-wheeler. And we had 13 sticks of dynamite. Now, I could just see the angels in heaven. You know, they, the angels minister to the saints, and I could see Gabriel saying, hurry, hurry, we need four legions of angels. And somebody says, why? Barbara and Hester are on a four-wheeler with 13 sticks of dynamite. Come on, come on. God, when that thing went down to the first place where we first beaver dam, I've never done this before. He gets out and puts his chest waders on, takes two sticks of dynamite, walks out in that water. Water comes pretty high on him and takes one of them and sticks it down in the dam. I didn't know you could put dynamite underwater. He took the second one, was going to put a cap into it, and he had some wires running from it. He says, take the end of these wires about 30 foot long. He said, stick them in the ground. I said, Why? He said, static electricity can set this dynamite off, and I don't want Patricia, my wife, looking for five million pieces of my body in the wolf's swamp. So I did. I grounded it. He put the cap in it and stuck it down under the water in the dam. 
came back and took those two ends out of the ground and had a battery. He said, now get behind something. I said, why? I want to watch. He said, Wayne, we're going to blow things up in the air. And I said, I know. I want to see. I want to see. And he said, Wayne, if they go up, they come down. Now get behind something. I didn't pay any attention. For about four seconds, I was behind the tree. He took those two little ends of the wires and touched them to that battery. Fire in the hole. I had never been around dynamite. You don't see it. You feel it first, or at least I did. It was kind of like, and then boom, and he was right. It went up in the air. Good, 9-11. And by the way, it did come down. We were ducking, boy, trees, limbs, everything coming down. And it was like, I have a quirky mind. The water was like, let me loose. Let us loose. And when we blew that dam, it was kind of like, all right. Amen. Flow, river flow. And the river began to flow. Went to the next dam, and I said, George. He said, what? I said, put three sticks in there. Come on, George. Come on. So he put three in there. And this time it wasn't whoom. It was whoom. <laughs> it was awesome. And the water was going, whoo, that's even better. Flow, river flow. Went to the next one. He said, I said, George, you chicken. You really. I said, put five in it. Come on, George. Put five in there. And I talked him into five sticks of dynamite in one little old beaver dam. <laughs> Son, it was awesome. God, woo! And it was, it's so nice. The beavers are still trying to repair the hole in the bottom of the river. They're never going to build that dam back. It was awesome. And the water was like, whoa, go, flow, river flow. Next year I went back. I said, George, what are we going to do this year? Same time of year. He said, this year we're going to create a nuclear explosion. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He said, I have a certain, well, thing that I've been soaking in gasoline. I'm not going to get into that because somebody's going to try it. For 72 hours, we've been soaking it in gasoline for diesel fuel for, for, in a five-gallon can, and we're going to put five sticks of dynamite inside of that. And I said, what are we going to do with it? He said, we're going after the beaver den. We're not going to the beaver now. We're going to get those critters. And so I said, yes. We got in a little boat and went out to where the beaver den was. And I have a 62 and almost 63-year-old body, but I have the mind of a 14-year-old. And uh, well, that's my problem. My mind's getting younger. My body's getting older. And I got out there and I went, anybody home? Nobody came to the door. I said, UPS. <laughs> Left them a little package. <laughs> I'm not going to begin to try to explain to you this explosion. I'm, they're saying why the ozone layer has been, you know, is messed up. I know why. They just won't come out and tell you. If you're ever watching TV and Kosciuszko, Mississippi has disappeared, Rand will call McNally and say, whew, got to redraw that thing. There's a hole in there somewhere. Barbara and Hester have been down there. I mean, it was unbelievable. Don't worry. If there was any beavers in there, you'd never know it because nothing came out any bigger than my finger. Golly, Dave, we, we got in his Jeep and went back to his house about almost a mile away, pulled up in the, in the driveway, and his son-in-law came out and said, what did you all do? And we said, we just had a little explosion. He said, a little explosion? He said, glasses fell in the sink and broke. We're looking for cracks in the foundation. <laughs> you say, Wayne, why would you put a story like that in a message? Well, you know, I've just been reading the Gospels. Jesus had a way of doing that. Didn't he? he just stop and say, oh, let me explain to you what I'm talking about. In John 14, 15, and 16, he said, I'm going to go back to my Father, and my, the Spirit's going to come and not be with you, but be in you. 
Now listen carefully. Out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. It's not a matter of getting the water. It's a matter of releasing it. You already have it. Everything that God has given is not a promissory note. You don't have to go do something in order to get it. You already have it. The key is letting it flow in your life. And the dams that we build in our life are when we refuse to do what God tells us to do in the power he gives us to do it. And for that reason, we don't have that humility that Paul had. For that reason, we don't have that love that is an anchor to our life or that discernment or that unselfishness because that is not us. That is the character of Jesus flowing out of us. What you see in Paul is not him. It's Christ in him in the face of false apostles who politically and with polished rhetoric made the people feel better about themselves, had no clue what they were talking about and had no clue who they were talking about. And standing in their face was a man who just let the river flow. That's what you're seeing in the Apostle Paul. And that's what you and I want to be in the face of the deception that's in our world. Not just full of that what we're talking about, but full of the who we're talking about. Letting Jesus be Jesus in us. That's what where humility is born right there. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org.